Being a dad isn't always easy, but it's the best thing I ever did. I'm constantly improving myself to be the best dad I can be through fitness, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle. As fathers, we pass on many things to our children, such as our mindset, our habits, our attitude, and what we've learned along the way. Each of these will shape who our children are and who they will become. The Warrior Dad's mission is to help you become the healthiest version of yourself, to hone your edge, and to live with purpose. My name is Jim Bartomey, and this is the Warrior Dads Podcast. Hey, before we jump into the interview, whether you're a longtime listener or a first-time listener, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm honored that you would choose this to listen to. Uh, in addition to that, thank you. I wanted to ask you two things. If you do like this episode or any of the other episodes you've listened to, could you leave a comment or a review or a rating? That would really mean a lot, and it really helps out the show a lot whether you're listening to it on iTunes or Spotify or Anchor or whatever platform, um, please take 20 to 30 seconds to leave a nice, honest review. And the second thing is that we can continue the conversation on Facebook and continue to connect and support each other over there in the Warrior Dads uh, private group. So um, if you're on Facebook, I'd really appreciate you to just you know click join and connect with other guys that are looking to become stronger, healthier, happier, better leaders, etc. Okay, let's jump into the interview. Hey guys, thanks for tuning back in for another episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. Today my guest is John Beattie. John has climbed to the top of the tallest mountain on every continent, including Mount Everest. More people have orbited in space than have climbed the tallest mountain on every continent. During the nine-year adventure, he somehow survived avalanches, pulmonary edema, tribal warfare, and a whole lot of cliff bars. He's a worldwide adventurer who has traveled to 67 countries, written three books, and given live presentations to nearly 1 million live audience members. He's the author of three books. The newest is called The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit. John, thanks for coming on the Warrior Dads podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here with you. Yeah, man. I mean, this is this is quite an intro, and I was really glad that you reached out to me to to come on the podcast. And then when I started learning more about you, I'm like, wow, like what has this guy not done? So um, <laughs> I'm super excited to just kind of, you know, obviously there's a lot of your backstory in the intro there, but I'm just really intrigued on what put you on that journey. What made you want to do this? Was it from the time you were a kid? Was it, you know, did it just come about? as a challenge for you? Oh, the seven summits journey. Yeah. 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 I, at first it was, I just wanted to go climb mountains and, and explore the world. And it really in hindsight, in full honesty, it started with me wanting to like be uh, the most badass guy I could to other people and just like show off. Essentially it was ego driven. And then, right. it, then it switched. It became, well, actually, people don't really care that much if I climb a mountain. It doesn't impact them very much. And <laughs> you know, like ultimately, like if I have a cool Facebook photo, so what? You know, it gets some likes and friends are like, oh, awesome. And then they move on. With their right. Life. So then it was you're like. You're at a party and you're like, yeah, I climbed this mountain. They're like, where's that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I remember... <laughs> Unless you say Everest, right? Unless you say Everest. They're like, oh, all right, that's pretty cool. Well, you'd be surprised. Like, I remember right before I went to Everest, I was saying, telling somebody I was going to go out there. And they were like, oh, Mount Everest. I love California. <laughs> that's like that's like uh 
Jim Carrey's uh, line in Dumb and Dumber where they say Aspen, California. Yeah, exactly, oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but like wow. on a whole different level, right? Of Dumb and Dumber. You're right. So yeah, absolutely. So it switched my motivation to impressing other people to learning to dig deep and find out what I'm made of and explore what my own limits are. And then once I realized, kind of like, here's what I'm, here's the altitude that I'm able to push against. Here's the duration of days. And here's the difficulty of climbs. That's my, my own personal peak. And I kind of proved myself to myself. Then it became about moving meditation. And that's where it sits right now. It's, it's about being calm and still in the midst of chaos happening all around me, storms, snow, ice whipping up in my face massive windstorms you know, whipping that snow into my goggles and being able to be at peace, which has translated into being able to handle life's storms at peace and just kind of observe them going on around me without emotionally reacting. Mm-hmm. What, so what are, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, I do not know all the um, tallest mountains and I, I was going to Google it. I'm like, you know what? I just want to, I just want to find out what I'm talking about. <laughs> cool. So what are, what are the tallest mountains that you've climbed? All right. So I'll bust through them in the order that I first attempted each of them. South America's okay. tallest is Aconcagua um, in Argentina. North America's tallest. That was the first one you did. That was the first I attempted. Yeah. but I. So you didn't even start in your own backyard, essentially. I, you just went to a different continent. Yep. I was on full on adventure mode and like, let's go to South America, boys, and see what we got. And we got our, we got whooped. We got a storm came in and uh, we did not summit. And it took me four total attempts to, to succeed at that climb. Um, in the same trip? Over the course of, four, over the course of four years. Wow. So, I kept so you didn't returning and returning. So you didn't summit. Right. So it took you four years just to do one. While I was still attempting others. So I went and succeeded on Denali. And then I went back to in North America went back to South okay. America, failed at it again. Then I went and climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is its tallest, and Mount Elbrus, which is Europe's tallest. Tried again. Uh, Aconcagua didn't make it up. Um, uh, and it was in 2012 when I finally succeeded at that mountain in South America, Aconcagua. Then I went to Everest, which is, of course, Asia's tallest. Then to um, Karsten's Pyramid, which is Australasia's tallest. It's in Indonesia. And then finally Mount Vincent or Vincent Massif, which is in Antarctica. Wow. So what was the hardest one then? Emotionally, the hardest was Everest. Um, Nine people passed away, and it takes more mental endurance than physical endurance, in my opinion. Um, Fascinating that 20-year-old-ish climbers do great in the beginning for the first two weeks. They're the strongest. You know, they come in, they thought, yeah, I'm going to take this mountain out. But it's usually the 30 to 50 year olds who have the best success rate because they're able to pace themselves and go slow and be able to um, see everybody, hear everybody complaining around them, everybody else whining and people quitting and people passing away and still be able to um, to move forward amidst that. Meanwhile, the younger climbers say, I'm not I'm not up for this anymore. I'm wiped out. I'm exhausted. Um, So emotionally, Everest was the hardest. On a day-to-day physical basis, Denali was the hardest. You're carrying like 50 pounds on your back and a sled that's got 60 pounds in it. And the days are the longest and the conditions are some of the toughest. So it's interesting that you've mentioned the one in South America. That 
being being that it took you four times to do that, that wasn't one of your hardest. <laughs> um, I, I suppose I was answering more of an objective answer versus my personal hardest. So um, Aconcagua was certainly the one that took maybe the most gr- like commitment hardest level or the most resilience to to just keep getting at it and keep like failing my way forward. And each time that I went and something went wrong that turned me around, I had to learn from that and come back. So, um, I mean, they were all hard in their own way, but <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, I, yeah, Akinkaga was certainly up there amongst the hardest. Right. So staying with Akinkaga, mm-hmm. how far did you get the first time? And how did you know when you were like, all right, I'm done. That's it. And then how far did, I mean, so like you get to a certain, cause I'm, I'm picturing this like gigantic mountain and how many days did it take before? Well, actually maybe that's a better question. How many days did it take before you were like, all right, I'm we done. were on the mountain for 16 days. And you didn't get to the Correct. top. I mean, these mountains are massive. Did it take you 16 days to get back down? Uh, 16 total days of the trip. And so it probably took us oh, like okay. 14 days up and then we got out in two days. So the kind of trajectory of the climb, which I think will answer uh, those two previous questions, is we walk in for three days, get to base camp, and we had met um, a climber from Germany who was trying to rally us up to climb up a route called the Polish Glacier. And that route goes up a steep 60-degree ice sheet, and none of us were really interested in doing it with him, but we became friends with him in his kind of quest to go up this, this path, and we had had a few meals with him. Well, he finds somebody who wants to go and he ends up falling and he passes away in the fall. Um, and that rocked all of us. So we take a couple of days of reassessing. Do we really want to do this? What's why we had to, we had this body recovery effort going on around us. And finally we decided, well, we're still here and that was awful, but we're still going to, we're still going to try. And we climbed for three more days up to the high camp which is the positioning point to go for the summit. And on that night, I see a massive lenticular cloud, which is like, it looks like a spoon, essentially, like real flat and rounded um, style cloud directly over the mountain. And that told me through all my research, that means there's a massive storm coming in. I told the people at the camp, like, guys, it's not the right day to go. Um, I convinced the people who are on my immediate team, yep, we're going down. But uh, there was a team of Italian climbers guided by a local Argentinian. They climbed and three of them passed away. Um, and then the whole mountain turned into a rescue effort to, to get the remaining survivors down and to recover those bodies um, from, from the mountain. And so that was just like an introduction to mountaineering that was as real as it gets, as intense as it gets, and emotionally and physically exhausting um, as, as possible. It was also the longest I'd ever been out in the wilderness previously. It was like five days on a backpacking trip. And then here I am 16 days in and I see all these people passing away. And I see these, I mean, the, the enormity of these mountains that take that long to climb. It was a real like thrown into the fire um, moment. And it got real, it got super real, real fast. Wow. How big are these how big are these groups of people that are going with you? Um, ours was three. Uh, I like to keep tight, tight, small groups when I'm mountaineering so that there's not too many. I mean, climbers are alpha male. Usually, like, 
we're going to do it my way or the highway kind of style a type personalities so if you get too many of those on a team uh often it, it becomes difficult to have a cohesive purpose within a group uh, and that's why i like to keep it to three or four um often two uh is, is my climbing size team size um but usually eight or fewer is is what you see in in larger groups so are you putting together your own teams or is it, so you're not, it doesn't sound like you're going through like a, a company or a, I a, have an organized group or something like that. I'm like, Hey, you know, if you want to do Everest, we're going to go this day, this day, or, you know, I, I've done sign both up for it, essentially. Like on Aconcagua went with my own crew and I formed them and we did all the logistics together. Everest, that's a mountain that I thought was, I'd be, I'd be better served to have, um, a, a guided service on this climb. And so that one, I went through international mountain guides in, uh, out of, out of Seattle, Washington, awesome, awesome company. And, um, it, it depends on one, the country that I'm going to, for example, going into Russia, I didn't feel comfortable bribing uh, like Soviet style military guys in rural Russia who still think that the USSR exists. So I wanted to have a guide service that like handled that part of it for me. Um, you know, like, right. like, okay, there's no, I could probably climb that mountain on my own, but I don't want to deal with the, everything that surrounds it. Something like Everest, like, I don't know how to ship oxygen bottles to Nepal and get them all ship, taken on a donkey to base camp. I think I'm better off ha like asking somebody else for help in this scenario. Yeah, I, I'd agree. You mentioned on Everest, uh, a number of people dying i think mm -hmm. said nine were any of them the guides um there were there were there was a sherpa that was a part of our our crew who um fell through the ice and then there was another who was a sherpa guide who had a, um, a cardiac issue which is potentially pulmonary edema um so there were two sherpa guides who passed away um and i don't think that any of the others were were guides um because I'm just thinking like, wow, like the, you got these guides that are going on these trips. And I'm wondering, you know, how many they're doing per year. Maybe it's only one depending on their health and condition and all that stuff. But then it's, you know, their, uh, their exposure to that and the danger of that is like really high. You're right. I mean, the more trips they go on, the, the odds are, uh, I guess, against we them. talk about this risk to reward ratio that we're all signed up for and in agreement of, um, it's kind of a common conversation like hey you know like we could die out here right and everybody's like yep and i'm i'm up for that and if you're somebody who doesn't get that or understand that or doesn't register with you like well why would you guys put your lives at risk needlessly just to go touch a small piece of rock that's happens to be up in the sky in the middle of the himalayan mountains and if like there's no way to explain it to somebody who doesn't get it but for those of us who have that mountaineering itch and that craving to experience the beauty of creation and to be face to face with something that could kill us, but also brings us to life in a big way. Uh -huh. We get it. And there's this common understanding of, yeah, it's it, to, to us that get it or to are called that way. It's worth it. Wow. What was your, uh, what was your reaction when you got to the top of Everest? So I was, 
in a daze because I'm breathing 30% of the oxygen that you and I have right now, uh, which puts you into a state of hypoxia, which is a lack of oxygen in the brain. So whoever's up there has that condition going on. My oxygen bottles, I had two of them, um, had both, one was completely gone, leaked out. The second one was leaking. Um, and when I get up to the summit, I snap a photo, which I wasn't thinking of it at the time, but it marked, it timestamped on the photograph. And then my camera shuts down. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like 17 <laughs> years of dreaming about this, nine months of training, two months on the mountain, and the camera's dead. And all I did was get a photo of the sunrise. Like I didn't even get myself in it. What? And so I take the camera and I put it into my breast pocket. Batteries will sap insanely fast at in cold temperatures so i was i just need to warm it up and hopefully it'll be able to turn back on and then i start experiencing the moment for myself i'm looking out at the sun rising over tibetan china it's this beautiful um uh like reds and orange flaring happening over the that plateau i can see the curvature of the earth and i'm, I'm above the horizon so i'm actually looking down at the sunrise which is an amazing experience on the other side of Mount Everest, Everest's shadow is being cast for dozens of miles off in the, into the distance. And there's these uh, iconic mountains like Ama de Blom um, and Cho Yu that you can see, and their shadows are being cast further into the distance. So it's all these snow-capped peaks that each have their shadows being um, sent off away in the opposite direction of where I'm standing. And I start crying because I'm realizing how huge of a dream this is. And then the tears start freezing like as soon as they exit my eyeballs and I'm wiping chunks of ice oh, out of my eyes trying to like I'm serious are you serious not, chunks I mean, of ice like little bits of ice they're not like blocks no no yeah but it's like instantly yeah within a ice. second or two like pretty, like they get down to my cheek and it's like oh I just wipe that little little bit of ice away yep um so Jeez. Finally, I'm like, okay, let's get the goggles on, cover everything up again, because if my eye, if the tears are freezing that fast, then of course my skin could also freeze that quickly. So I get everything covered back up, and I start sure. thinking about the camera, go back for it. It turns on. I'm like, all right, awesome. I start um, uh, taking a few more photographs, and uh, I get my my guide who was with me. His name is Nuru Gyalzen Sherpa, local to Nepal. Um, we get in two photographs together. I had one photograph myself and um, I think it was five total pictures that we took before the camera shut down again. The last timestamp was 11 minutes after the first timestamp. And because my oxygen was uh, low, that was the entirety of the time I spent on the summit. And it was all in dream states because of hypoxia. You know, when you wake up from a dream, and you're like, did that really happen? Or did I just imagine like you, you can't quite figure out if it was a real dream or not. That's what, it, yeah. when I started walking down, that's what I remember thinking like, wait, was I, I was really, yeah, I was on top of Mount Everest. Pretty sure. Yep. Definitely. Sure. <laughs> and of course, wow. you know, like people say afterwards, yeah, I was up there with you, man. Of course you made it. It's, it was just this weird, like, did that actually really happen? Kind of thing. Cause my brain just couldn't, lock it in as a memory i guess geez that's wild man so you were on there 11 yeah, minutes yeah yeah roughly oh my god so 
so what were some of the biggest that all right so you, you climb all these mountains you finally beat the one in south america the, the name just keeps getting nobody knows that just, i can't even just, pronounce it it's aconcagua it's it means it means the white <laughs> sentinel it's like I just a, can't I it's a local it. um uh aboriginal language okay so you finally conquer this this last one and you did all of this you accomplished all of this what were the biggest takeaways that you have from doing these? What were the, or, or what were the biggest lessons that you learned about yourself? Definitely. Definitely. When doing these. That there's always more strength. Each of the mountains in some way mm-hmm. broke me. And I thought there's no way I can overcome this challenge. And whether that came down to taking a single more step or getting myself down safely or overcoming a real case of post-traumatic stress disorder after being up close and personal with 16 deaths throughout all of these mountains. Um, or just wondering like, do I intellectually have what it takes to uh, be able to fund these climbs and then technical expertise, any of those aspects of climbing. I found that there's always more strength. You can dig deeper. You can take that extra step. You can get emotionally healed and more resilient and you can figure out how to make things happen even if you don't know how to make them happen if you're truly committed to the summit and that of course is a wider analogy than just mountaineering that i'm talking about right now mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you're past the point of impressing people. and that's another great lesson <laughs> just not caring and that and like ironically people are more impressed when you don't care to impress them. <laughs> and like when you actually legitimately don't care yeah. what other people think, you're able to go after the thing you truly want to do without worrying what the opinions are or the uh, criticisms are. And you do your thing to a fuller degree, which is the impressive thing. But why do you think you even had that initial? need urge whatever you want to call it to be like hey i want to do this so i can look good for other people or that other people will be more impressed with me where do you think that came Um, from i think that comes from the insecurities of boyhood i think that comes from something that all of us have of like i need to find my place in society i need to prove myself that i that i have strength as a man and that I have a worth. Like I think every guy has that and we express it in different places, whether it's being able to sell more than, than your colleague or get better grades um, or have a bigger house or more kids or better kids. All of these are expressing the same desire of, of here's my, here's my strength as a man and here's my worth. And, like that flex of I, I need others to see this. Um, and the way that I got over it was just diving into it and trying it and realizing, oh, that actually doesn't get me anywhere. The same way that I hear people in midlife crises go through this moment of, yeah, I got the picket white fence and the, the kids in the house and nobody cared. <laughs> it was the same thing. It just did a much safer way right. than climbing of re- realizing that, Right. I should just live the life I want to live, not caring what others think. Because those crises, like those midlife crises you mentioned, they are linked to, they are linked to, um, yes, insecurity. 
right? And I've heard that before. And so do you feel like you've kind of shedded yourself? I mean, I feel like we all have certain things. Like, right? I, I feel this is just my personal belief, but I feel like everybody has, you know, it's kind of like one of those old stereos where you can adjust the treble, you can adjust the mid, you can adjust the bass, and you can adjust the volume, like all these different knobs across. And I feel like we all have the same knobs. It's just the level that they're tuned to is completely different for everybody else. So if it could be, um, you know, it could be jealousy, it could be insecurities, it could be gratitude, it could be happiness or something like that. And we all have these different knobs. And it, again, it's just tuned to like, well, somebody might not be naturally jealous, but it might need me. It, uh, it might not mean that they're never jealous of anything in their entire life ever. It just might mean that they're a lot less jealous or they know how to control their knob better than other people can. And and certain people might be strung up really high naturally and they have to work to kind of crank it down. I think it's um, a beautiful analogy. So, I completely agree with that. I was kind of like picturing my um, high school speaker system and a few of those had like a mute button on them <laughs> where I could just like disable that feature. But uh -huh. to continue the analogy, you know, some people just, they have never experienced, they don't even know that the mute button might be on, but it certainly functions for them still. Mm -hmm. I like that too. And um, so I just, I just feel like we, you know, like you said, we all have those insecurities. It just depends on how prevalent they are or how extreme they are. Do you think using that same analogy, do you think that you've been able to dial that knob down from your experiences? Which which specific knob are we talking about? A gratitude knob or which? <laughs> being no, being insecure, the insecurities that you had. I, I really do. I think that um, yeah. I think that it surfaces in different aspects. Like when this book, The Warrior Challenge, was released uh, a couple months ago. Now, um, the early critical reviews were were like mediocre, kind of meh style about it, um, and that put me into that level of insecurity. Like here's this thing that I've, I've worked over for a year and if, like the best writing that I have comes across as meh, like that puts you into an insecure state. Um, and what I realized was like, this is the best thing that I've created. And it doesn't matter if a few critics like don't see the value in it right off the bat. And they were like, oh, gender doesn't exist kind of thing. And they can't criticize uh, you can't separate men from girls was really their, their attacks against it, um, which I just don't agree with. So eventually I was like, well, those are the people yeah, yeah, yeah. criticizing your book. <laughs> so, and, I, yeah, and that's, I that's what I get. That's what I finally like set back on. Like, okay, check in with yourself. Where's your value and what, what value does this thing have to bring to the world? And I mean, now that actual like people are reading it, it's got great reviews, but what's interesting is I just don't care that the great reviews are there either because that's the same seeking of approval, right? Like, I mean, I mean, it's awesome. It's cool. It's great that it's turned around, but it's, I've learned to not seek approval. If that's, yeah, if that's the outlook, yeah, if that's the outlook of, I want to seek approval from the good reviews, I think then I agree with you. I think maybe a better way to look at the good reviews is, gratitude that it's helping mm -hmm. somebody or it's changed them for the better in some way, or it's inspired them to do something or take action in an area of their life that, you know, has been lacking. So I think that would be a good way. 
that's how that's, I would that's a that's a better use. expression of what me. I'm when I say I don't care I, I, I that's the wrong way to say it like I'm certainly grateful for it and certainly like awesome this work is helping other humans to to own their warrior uh their inner warrior and helping boys to grow up well and that's that's something I'm incredibly grateful for for sure so to, so to wrap it all like to, yeah. to bring it all together learning this ability in mountaineering which was a course of nine years of stopping seeking of approval finding that i have strength within and being at peace with it amidst the the storms well now when it comes to a real life moment like book reviews instead of going through nine years of devastation because of some cranky reviewer that doesn't believe gender exists and now it's like 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 a few days of oh that sucks and uh well okay let's really check in with what's going on all right this book has value and i'm certain it's going to help people like it compressed that that time because i'd gone through that lesson previously yeah that's awesome well i don't want to get away from the uh, natural segue that we just brought up about the book because i i I really want to hear about this book and i can't wait to get my you know get a copy of it because um as I mentioned before, my son and I, we love reading these kinds of things. Um, we've, we've written or we've read um, books similar. Well, from what I perceive to be similar, cause I, I don't have a copy yet, but I mean, I, I can't wait to get it cause we love sitting down and reading these kinds of things. So I can't wait, but what made you, what made you come up with this? Was this, was this, were these the lessons from your mountaineering climbs and and things that you wanted to just pass on to boys that they can start. This book is a rite of passage. Young. I looked at my mountaineering career and saw that that's essentially what I had created for myself. This journey from boyhood to manhood that I didn't even know I was making. And it was a nine-year journey for me. But I look back at past cultures and they had a set, this is the thing you do to prove yourself as a man and to be able to look after yourself in, in the climate that you lived in at the time and how to look after others. And it was a, a shorter time frame than nine years, of course. And what I did with this book was give eight challenges that are taken from real life heroes, that each of these challenges is a, a quest or an adventure that teaches a trait. And so I'll quickly kind of like list off what these traits are. The first one is stepping up, just choosing to become a better person than what society will, will send you down the course of being. The second is to become self-aware, to learn how to see what's going on in your, your own mind and heart without reacting to it. Instead, to learn how to, to choose how to act based on what you're seeing in yourself. Third is uh, uh, to choose your own values. Come up with your own system or your family's system of values that you're going to live each day by as best you can. Vulnerability is covered. Here I talk about some of the mountaineering deaths and what happened on Everest. Um, boundary setting. Uh, we talk about grit and resilience, we talk about how to stop toxic relationships or how to avoid becoming a toxic person yourself. And then finally, how to choose your own battleground and a purpose for your life that will improve others as a result of all of these other values that you've, that you've embodied. Now, that's, those are some heavy, intense subjects for 10 to 16-year-old boys, right? So I was like, if they're going to be engaged in these subjects and truly grasp them and get them, I need to pair these values with the most awesome adventurers that I've ever heard of or read about or met in my life. 
And so like you're jumping over the Great Wall of China on a skateboard. It's a real story from Danny Way. You're climbing El Capitan in Yosemite. You're Ernest Shackleton seeing your boat sink in Antarctica. You're a Civil War pirate stealing uh, a Confederate ship and sailing it off to the Union Army. Like all these stories are what embody these traits from real life people. So that instead of saying like, hey, Kevin, your son or whoever, whatever your kid's name is, like, what did the book say about equality? Instead, it's, hey, what would, what would Robert Smalls do right now? Or what would Danny Way do right now? Or what would Kevin Jorgensen and Tommy Caldwell do right now uh, in any circumstance in life? So there's emblems of these heroic traits. That's awesome. Dude, that, that got me even more <laughs> pumped you. up to read this book, all those different things. Because a lot of them I agree with. I, I, I love the, the values, you know, setting, setting your values. I do that actually with my clients. I have them uh, around, around four different key areas. I have them create values in each of those areas that they want yeah. to live by, kind of like a code that you, that you want for your life and that, that's really meaningful. And if you don't live I'm by so those, then it's going to affect that. you. And it's so and funny typically you say in a code, negative way, you know. And you use that language because I, I talk about how creating your own warrior creed. And there's an exercise for parents to go through with their and their sons. Here's the creed that you as a warrior will live by. It's the same thing as a code, just like military. All branches of the military have a, a, a motto or a creed that they they live by. That's what they fight by. Why don't why don't we give that to boys today mm-hmm. that's not violence fighting, but virtue fighting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's that word code too, that's actually used in some of the mm. other books that we were, that I was mentioning. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the series is called the way of the warrior kid. And so the, the kid is taught by his uncle, who's a, who's a Navy seal. And the book was written by a Navy seal. And, um, and so, you know, he, he has his nephew develop what he calls the warrior kid code. And, um, so when we started reading that, I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool, you know, because I, I was already doing that with my clients for years, uh, creating these core values and stuff like that. And I've been teaching my my son this stuff little by little. And, you know, you mentioned something I think pretty important is that you, you know, and I think maybe you were just trying to allude to the fact of how you actually wrote it and how it's actually being portrayed to the kids reading it. So you don't make it, I guess, too adult for them. But I think the lessons are super important, no matter how old they are. You know, I've been teaching my son and my wife as well. We've been teaching our son about nutrition and the dangers of food dyes and sugars and, and things like that. And, you know, why it's important to eat organic food, you know, in a in a childlike way and in a fun type way since he was two years old. I mean, I, we can remember we would drive by McDonald's and he would say two years old and he'd say dirty M because <laughs> oh, you'd always see awesome. the M on the McDonald's. You don't, you know, every McDonald's yeah. has a big yellow M outside and we lived, uh, you know, three blocks from one uh, when he was, you know, living in the house that he, he was born in uh, or grew up in. And so he would say dirty M dirty M. And then when he got old enough, he said, it's not even real meat. <laughs> it was just, the cutest thing, of course, coming from a two and a half year old, of course, I'm biased because it's my son. But, um, you know, we're in Costco one time and I've told the story before. So I'll keep it brief. But we're in Costco one time. He's five years old. This Vitamix guy is doing his presentation. He's using a bunch of spinach to make everything green. And my son picks up on it. He says, Dad, he's using spinach instead of food dye mm. to make everything green. And the guy heard it and he's like, he already knows about food dye. He's like, did he just, you know, and so he was asking how old he was and. 
so I think all everything that you're talking about, whether the whether the child is eight years old or twelve years old or sixteen year old uh, years old, I think they all need to hear this because it's not like they're just going to get it the moment they hear it. But you slowly keep drip feeding them this information. If they start at the age of eight, how much better are they going to be at the age of sixteen? Yes. You know, or if they start at 16, how much better are they going to be at the age of 24 when they're hanging around a bunch of knuckleheads that maybe never thought about this stuff or didn't have anybody to teach them this or something like that? So I think I saw a quote I, two I days ago awesome. or something that said it was and, along and, the lines of it is so much easier to make a boy into a man than it is to make a man boy into a man. And like starting early with this stuff makes it so much easier <laughs> to help a, a young man grow up well than it is to try and fix yeah. a pathology that's been created as a result of not getting this stuff early in life. I mean, I personally didn't, didn't learn how to set boundaries properly and well in a way that grew relationships and built my relationships closer until I was in my thirties. Why? Like, well, this is a simple mm -hmm. thing. Let's teach it to 10 year old kids. So they know how to say, no, that doesn't work for me. Here's an alternate alternate uh, approach that I would love it if you could uh, ha deal with me in this way or or, or um, not do this period because it pisses me off and and have that be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know where kind of like you know went astray because I, I would think that um, you know more primitive type civilizations you know obviously spent a lot of time with their children and i think the the saying it takes a village uh, probably stems from times like that where the the family stayed together right you know now now nobody usually lives with their parents unless there's some kind of specific circumstance but you know back in the day way way back in the day it's you know people stuck together the village you know helped all the children out together and stuff like that and that's you know where i think that saying comes from um and then maybe the start of industrial revolution and just kids just going to school and sitting in desks and then the parents not seeing them as much and spending as much time with them i mean maybe that had something to do with it i, I mean who knows you know who's to say wh who's right or who's wrong when it comes to those theories um but i think you just mentioned something really good that i i did have a question on from before is that you said learning about these relationships in your thirties, you're talking about how you essentially had a rite of passage going and climbing all these mountains. How old were you when you started your, we're talking about the seven summits. I think I was 26 when I first climbed Aconcagua. I started climbing when I was uh, 23 climbing big mountains and rock climbing when I was 14. So like, okay. But when did you feel like that actual "quote unquote" rite of passage? I would say it was that trip to Aconcagua when those when those four folks passed away. And so I was I was twenty six, yeah. So twenty six. Yeah, and in your opinion, um, from what you've seen, from what you've heard, from these experts that you mentioned, um, and other rites of passage that you learned about in your travels, how old are kids usually? when or how old are boys usually when they have these rites of passage or should have i mean i don't know if there's like a a set well, age you know or, historic you know, but historically in your experience puberty. what is that usually uh, you look at kenya and tanzania is go hunt a lion when you're 11 12 13 years old 
um, in Vanuatu, they tie vines to the legs of young men and make them jump out of a hundred foot tree when they're 13. Um, in Hamar, people would castrate a bull and then the boys would have to run naked across the back of the bull. The Maui tribe in Brazil, uh, you take a, a glove that's made of leaves and stuff the glove with bullet ants, which is the most painful insect bite on the planet. And boys have to stick their hands into this glove 20 separate times and keep their hand in for, all, for five minutes for each one of those ordeals. And it's 24 hours of paralyzing pain. Like These are all when the boys have just hit puberty. Um, 10 to 13 years old is when classically these, these trials happened. And if you look at all of these, this is in that environment, like in, in the rainforest, if you can't put up with the pain, the worst, worst pain possible from that bullet ant, then what good are you? Because if some ants start coming after a baby, then you won't have the courage to brush the ants away or to, to you know, if you can't handle that pain, then you'll crumble in any other pain. And I, right. So some of them are pain driven. Some of them are bravery driven, right? Like, I mean, to have vines tied around your ankles <laughs> and then just jump. I mean, you can't really trust the vines, yeah, trust the, the person's tying the village, them. I mean, otherwise, the village elders would be the ones doing the, the tying. Tale. And the closer your head got to the ground, the more of a man you were deemed. And so that was, can you look death in the face and not have fear? And if you're scared at the top of the tree before you get pushed out off the platform, or if you're trembling, uh, you kind of lose credibility points or, or you lose ranking. Um, yeah. So it's just a, it's hell, a head dude. first plunge. And Did you imagine like, that? <laughs> yeah. at 12 years old or 11 like just there you go boom <laughs> I can't I, I don't, imagine I doing that do right now well that's the thing it's like now there's I no mean, purpose to these like if you and I stuck our hand in a glove full of ants or if we jumped out of a tree with shoddy vines tied to our legs it would just be like reckless but then it had a real solid purpose so we threw out the baby with the bathwater. we threw out the rite of passage because those would be abusive today, but we lost the, here's the clear path, the ritual that it takes to, to be integrated as an adult in our society. And here are the values. Here are the things that we, we, we want and need and ask of our men in order for you to look after yourself and look after others. That's what all rites of passage taught young boys at that age. And I think that's why this term man boy became a thing after the industrial revolution because that was the time frame as you mentioned when um uh, generations split up and boys no longer had a clear path of here's what it takes to grow up mm -hmm. have you spent any time thinking about what a meaningful modern i think it's up to each family or each community to create them for their own boys and so i, I can tell you the components I mean, mine was obviously climbing mountains, but I think that the first component is to figure out something that seems daunting and maybe possible, but still out of reach or out of grasp because there has to be that sense of pushing up against, I don't know that I can finish this or I don't know that I can accomplish this. So um, that challenge has to be there. Mm. The second thing is this needs to have, a, there needs to be a guide. There needs to be somebody who's skilled and experienced at keeping the young man safe. It shouldn't be like sending your kids off into the 
Australian outback for outback for six months and hoping they come back, which was a real thing that happened then. But even in that example, there was a guide that trained those young men to be able to survive first. Um, then the third part is there needs to be a, a point or a purpose. It shouldn't just be, hey, let's go whitewater rafting because it's fun, or let's go on a rock climbing trip because it sounds really cool. There needs to be in advance a choice of this is what accomplishing, accomplishing this thing will mean. Here's what I'm aiming to get out of it. There has to be an intention put forward before the crazy wild task is completed. So it could be like if you're if you're in the Midwest and you're a hunting family or you're up in Alaska, it could be like, hey, you, you're going to go hunt your first animal. It could be I'm going to go catch a fish. It could be um, we're going to climb a mountain as a family together. Um, and those are kind of like classic man's man examples, but it could be any number of things. It could be you're going to rip this riff on a guitar. And once you play that, like that's the thing you didn't think you could do. Now you could do it. That makes you a man. It's up to each family, each person to determine that for themselves or each community. Yeah. I heard in certain parts of Russia that pressing a 70 pound kettlebell overhead is <laughs> I sometimes, it. sometimes considered a right. <laughs> I'm passage. definitely not a Russian man. I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really cool. And so it took you a year yeah, to write this I, book. I locked myself said, up in you mentioned earlier. February of 2019 saying like this book has, I mean, the, the contract was signed. It was, it was set to be published, but it was on spec. And so it was, which means the publisher said, we'll buy the book before uh, we see the book. And so I was like, okay, this matters. This can really make a massive difference in so many young men's life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to commit to making this the best book it can be. So I was locked up from February through December writing it. Uh, and then I was like, yay, I'm, I'm like able to go interact with society again. I get to have friends and I see my family. And then, of course, two, two months later, COVID <laughs> starts. And I'm like, oh, back into the hole. <laughs> so it, wow. So what's next for you? What, what, what are you going to work on next or do next? Or I'm creating... Um, so I, I'm a motivational speaker. It's what I've done for 15 years. And because stages are shut down, my current project is to give virtual keynote speeches from actual mountaintops. So I bought this autonomous drone and I'm going to be climbing mountains and then delivering speeches for clients from mountaintops with this drone flying around me. Uh, that's my current work project. Um, and uh, I, at one point, I'd like to sail around the world. Uh, that's That's in my kind of five to 10 year vision um, and building businesses and, and getting a, uh, a home and a family is, is certainly the next adventure. Thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. Great things to strive for. And when you say sail around the world, you like oh, yeah. actually want to like... <laughs> sail. Exactly. <laughs> like a sail boat. Yep. <laughs> It's not like you just want to go on. No, a, I mean like, Caribbean like hoist the, the hoist the <laughs> sails, you <laughs> lassie. Well, I don't know. I don't even know the sailing terms. But scallywag. There we go. Right. You scallywag. Can tell how much a beginner I am. Like scallywag, I don't even know yeah. scallywag. What a <laughs> kind of crap pirate am I? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you have to know um, portside and scallywag. 
You got to know those. Those are the three things you have to know. I'm a proficient sailor now. (laughs) I know, I know, I know port is left because port's four letters and left is four letters. So there you go. We'll take a, we'll take a, other than that, I don't know how to sail. There you go. (laughs) Wow, man. So that's, that's a lot of life lessons wrapped up into, uh, one quick interview, but I, I think that was really amazing. And I, and I know people that are listening to this are going to, are going to be like, wow, look at, look at what this guy's accomplished. And, as, and, as and I are. hope people go out and, and get your book uh, because yes, you know, yeah, we're actually can people buy that book. And, and you know what, this is just great, great opportunity. Just, you know, where can people follow you on social media um, pl- plug your website, which will also be for anyone listening in the show notes and, and anything John's about to say will be in the show notes, but, um, but awesome. I, I always want people to hear, you know, from you. So where can, where can Thank people you, find out more about you? The buy best the book, place to, uh, buy the book is on Amazon. Go there and just type in the warrior challenge. It's the bright red cover and the subtitle is eight quests for boys to grow up with kindness, courage, and grit. And if you have a nephew, if you've got a son, you got a grandson and you want to make a true, lasting, meaningful impact in that young man's life, this book will create that impact. Gift it to him as a birthday present, Christmas present. If he's not uh, like eight or nine years of age yet, just buy it now so you have it on reserve when that age comes. This is the book that will, will change his life. If you want some bonuses um, and you'd like to follow this kind of the, the book's story and the online courses that I'm going to be creating around the lessons, then head to warriorchallengebook.com and to your email there. As far as uh, social media, at John Beatty, it's J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D-E uh, on all social media and you'll find me there. Okay. And you got a lot of cool things on, on your website too. And, you know, for anyone listening, that's, you just go on johnbd.com, you scroll a quarter of the way down and the link to the book is right there. You just click on it and then go that, you know, it'll take you to Amazon. Um, you have climbing films, you know, about so all seven summits will have documentaries there. created. I've done three so these far, that... Kilimanjaro, Vincent in Antarctica and Denali, as you mentioned. So I'll be making Everest in Indonesia when I was like in tribal warfare which we didn't even get into, uh, but like all of them will have their own film. And I've got some courses uh, as well. Actually, man, if you got time, I know we booked an hour, but if you got some time to talk about that, that's actually one of the things I did want to ask you about. I would love to hear about that tribal. We went thing. into this what, climb. What was and that all like, about? I mean, this is one of the few places in the world remaining where there, where Western civilization has yet to touch. This is guys living in the jungle with bamboo shoots over their penises and or these gourds or what they call them and they're running around in these loincloths and gourds and shooting like bows and arrows and darts at each other um this is in um so in indonesia where was this at in in the eastern side there's an island it's called um papua new guinea Well, well papua is the island and then that there's a straight line down the center and indonesia came along and said we own this side of it. Papua New Guinea can have the other side of it. So there's this massive tension between uh, Indonesian settlers or, or the um, those who say they, they own, now own the island and the aboriginals to the island. 
It's extremely tense. Um, but that's where the mountain was. So we walk in for, I think it was 10 days. We get to the climb, we successfully climb, get back down. And that night, um, many of the climbers that I was with, our team's boots were stolen. Uh, and it was, it was some locals who came and grabbed the boots and ran off with them. And I don't know the full details of how or why the, the fighting started, but I think it had something to do with those, either those boots or with like, can we like a potential hostage situation with us? It's, it's really unclear, but there was fighting that was happening down one side of the Canyon. We're in this Canyon with thousand foot cliffs on either side. So there's only two ways that we can go. One side has fighting. The other side has the world's largest gold mine. And um, we try and go that side to potentially go through the mine in order to get out. And there's guys with machine guns guarding it. And they, they tell us in advance, like, we don't want, we're not here as a service to extricate climbers. You guys want to come in? We're not helping you. So we knew in advance that, um, that they weren't there to, to help. And that was, I mean, that's fine. That's their business. Um, and after several days of waiting, um, and hoping that the fighting would stop and not being able to have shoes or boots to these guys. We, we ended up, uh, uh, working out some deals to be able to go through the mine and, and get, get our way out. Wow. So you got one, one set of guys has machine yeah, guns both and sides the other of ones have bow and arrows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we saw all the these gold. like sparkling gold looking things and, and we're like, oh my gosh, look how massive this rock is. And I like stuffed it into my boot and in like the little hidden pockets in my sleeping bag and stuff. And um, I get out and I'm like, I'm going to make like a hundred grand in gold. And I get home and I'm like, I just checked like... <laughs> several pounds of iron pyrite fool's gold back home <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the right stuff oh my god <laughs> wasn't the right stuff yeah um so you guys didn't really actually have to come across yeah the fighting. it you was like heard, you just so heard when, it happening, when i say right? fighting it's not like the wars there were like troops lines of troops like facing each other more imagine like a game of lethal paintball where like one or two people are chasing one or two other people. Um, and uh, it's kind of, it's kind of more that style. So if you, st if we sat really still for long enough, I mean, several hours, you would see some, some people running around or some motion. Um, but there wasn't like, it wasn't like game of Thrones, like a cloud of arrows flying across the Canyon into, <laughs> into troops, you know? Right, right, right. But did you see some of these Aboriginal? Oh, people we were with them the about, whole time. Like they went from their village around. where we landed, in up all the way up to the climb. And they they came. They started with about a hundred of them, just to kind of like hang out. And if if some of the guys came along, then they brought their their wives and they brought their children. So the whole village came with us for most of the walk in, and we were we were living with them amongst the jungle, and they were picking That's fruits awesome. off the trees and showing us the safest places to cross the rivers. Um, and we were living in their, their semi-permanent structures or not living, but like camping out in them and um, yeah, making, making food for each other and giving each other gifts. It was, it was a really cool experience. That's awesome, I didn't man. know any what of kind the of food fruits, they but they would pick them off the trees and they'd have like 
a lot of them had like spikes on them by, by the biology of the fruit and they'd crack it open and say, here you go, this is what we eat. And I'd, okay, here it goes. I bite into it and they were delicious, the tropical fruits, but I'd never seen them. Couldn't tell you what they're called to this day, but they were amazing. They would also catch wild uh, pig or boars out, out in, the, in the jungle. And um, a few times they would catch some fish in the streams. Um, and we of course brought our own food as well. And so we'd share like our, our, yeah, beside the cliff bars, exactly. We'd have like besides mountain cliff house, bars. like dehydrated, just add water, <laughs> boiling water meals. And then they would, they'd like have a taste of it and they would like cringe their face. Like, Oh God, why would you eat that? And I'm like, Oh, it's not just me right. that thinks this is crap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah yeah and they're like why oh, wouldn't no, why wouldn't like, i just kill this pig this? and have it fresh you know, and get like, this like fruit straight off the tree like you guys are fools dude yeah I'd, exactly yeah i'd rather have wild boar isn't it which oh, yeah, i have yeah, 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 it's delicious course, course, did course. you get to have some oh yeah yeah that's amazing oh my god and i'm, I'm a foodie so i'd love to find i'd love to see like how they prepare stuff and because I, I love cooking and it's it's a big passion of mine and just to see how other people cook and how other people mm-hmm. live that's another thing i'm fascinated with too mm-hmm. you know because um you know just being you know in our little bubble here in the united states and um thinking this is everything just because we're the land of opportunity it's just the whole world is so much bigger though and there's so much out there to see and experience which you have and so to be able to see that is just so amazing to see how other people live and these, you know, you're talking about like, I'd, I'd want to be like checking out their bow and arrows. Like, how are you making, oh, how are yeah, you making yeah. these things? Like, show me how to make an arrow, show me how to make a bow. I'm just fascinated with all that kind of stuff because, you know, you take the majority of the people in just our society today. And yep. Like they, if I was they, told they don't know how to like, do any build, of a, build a spear to protect your life, I would, be guessing my whole way or i'd be on youtube i couldn't do it just on out of scratch right now but that's just something that people grow up knowing how to do there right right and it's just passed down and passed down and passed down and like it's yeah yeah so that's that's really cool man that's so awesome i'm glad you were Thanks able for to, asking uh, about it. to share that story yeah I did actually have it right here in front of me and I, I switched my screen. I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm so glad you mentioned it. Cause I'm like, damn, I did want to find out about that tribal warfare thing. Um, that's awesome. Well, before we, before we finally wrap up, I have um, 10 questions that I ask with uh, every guest. Let's and do these it. Questions were inspired by James Lipton. So you ready? My All dad. Right. Who is your hero? Becoming grounded. What excites you? Uh, what turns you off? Blatant disrespect of a on a community wide scale. Nice. What is your favorite Waves. sound? Yeah. <laughs> Sixty seven countries and its waves. <laughs> nice. Um, what is your least favorite sound? crying like agony ag- the sound of agony hmm. 
What is your favorite quote or saying? The mountains will never lower themselves to your level, but you must rise up to the demands presented to you by the climb. Um, that was my mantra that I wrote when I was on Aconcagua, and I've kept it with me ever since. The mountains That's will never awesome. lower themselves Say to your level, time, but you must rise up to the demands presented to you by the climb. That is awesome. I love that. In a couple words, what should a dad be? Present. Giving of direction, grounded, and compassionate. Nice. And in a few words, what Um, should a dad not be? Violent, and I mean that in beyond physical violence. Um, Disinterested, without purpose. If you could try any other profession, I would be a uh, clean energy engineer. I would work towards combating global warming. Cool. And finally, what would you like like people to remember me being fully there and with them in? intending to be fully present in each interaction um, to be full of joy and not in a naive way but seeing that there's pain and choosing even despite seeing that uh, pain in the world choosing to be full of mirth nice i like that awesome jim that's a great way to end it Thank you for a beautiful conversation. It's been a real joy to be here with you. Yeah, John, I really appreciate it. Uh, Loved our talk. Loved everything that you had to share. And um, thanks. I'll get you the the coffee. And and everybody listening, go buy your coffee. Yeah. All right. Have a good day. See you later, everybody. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Warrior Dads podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, please subscribe, leave comments, and share it with someone you think would benefit from listening as well. Thanks again, and keep on being a warrior dad.